0: Welcome to Lit Health. I'm Tracy Granzik, your host and senior director of the Center for Healthcare Narratives at the Medstar Institute for Quality and Safety, along with editor-in-chief of Please See Me, an online literary magazine seeking to elevate the voices and health-related stories of vulnerable populations and those who care for them. On Lit Health, we'll be lighting a fire underneath the status quo of healthcare through interviews with authors, healthcare leaders, and policymakers all working to create a healthcare environment that is equitable and transparent, and that welcomes the needs of every patient, especially our vulnerable populations, including the mentally ill, people of color, women who feel they are still at risk in our current health system, the elderly, and anyone who feels bias or the isms affect their health or quality of life. Join us to stoke the fire. We wanna hear the health-related stories from our listeners on both sides of the bed rail, the courtroom and the aisle. David Mayer has spent the last three decades fighting for a safer healthcare delivery environment. A cardiac anesthesiologist by training and medical educator by passion, he currently serves as Executive Director of the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety, where he leads quality and safety programs in support of discovery, learning, and the application of innovative methods to operational clinical challenges. He recently served as the Chief Executive Officer for the Patient Safety Movement Foundation, where he led global patient safety efforts and initiatives in 64 countries and in over 4,800 hospitals. He also founded and has led the annual Telluride International Patient Safety Roundtable and the Academy for Emerging Leaders in Patient Safety Summer Camp for the last 13 years. Additionally, he has co-produced the patient safety educational film series entitled The Faces of Medical Error, From Tears to Transparency which has won numerous awards, including the prestigious Aegis Film Society's Top Short Documentary Award. He serves on numerous boards and has been recognized multiple times for his leadership and work elevating safety and quality in medicine. He is currently at work on a memoir of sorts and is here to talk with us today about that. The book details his walk across America during 2020 to keep all eyes on the continued need to make healthcare safer for patients and providers, despite the pandemic swirling around him in the streets. Dave, welcome to Lit Health. Thanks so much for joining us on this uh, episode of Lit Health. Really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Tracy. It's great to be on the program.
0: So you're here because you're writing a book. A first-time, big-time author attempt at a long-form manuscript. Tell us a little bit about why you're writing it and what, what it's about.
1: You're right. This is the
0: first time I've written a
1: book. I uh, like this, a nonfiction-type book that's non-academic. I had crazy idea. I decided to walk across the country trying to raise awareness about healthcare safety, both for patients and healthcare workers. And I started in February of 2020, and one would say it was a crazy idea for a 67-year-old physician to try to navigate across the country in any year. And my plan was to visit ballparks. I'm a big lover of baseball, and I would go to a major league ballpark. I'd walk to it in the cities across the country and take in a baseball game to make the journey across the country more of a bucket list type thing. But little did I know that two weeks after I started my walk, the pandemic hit. And people started telling me, if you're going to continue, which I did, you need to take a handheld recorder. You need to record what's going on, what you saw, the reflections. And you need to write a book about it. Because like I said, in any year, it was a crazy idea. As many people told me to do what I did. But to do it during the worst pandemic we've had in over 100 years, to do it in a year where we saw both political and racial polarization that directly impacted me and others while we were walking across the country, the story needed to be told. So uh, for the last eight, nine months, I've been concentrating on trying to write this book so that it also helps raise awareness about the third leading cause of death in this country, and that's preventable medical harm to patients.
0: That was the burning platform though, right? Was the, the need to raise awareness of, of the harm that befalls patients and and especially providers during 2020. Wasn't that your impetus that really drove you.
1: That was exactly what drove me to the idea. You know, for 30 years, I've been standing on podiums, uh, in front of podiums. I've been talking about urgency around preventable medical harm. And for 30 years, we hardly made a difference. The results and the outcomes were not changing. And I just decided I needed to do something different. I needed to do something so drastic. So out of the ordinary that maybe it would draw attention to this crisis. And we all knew in healthcare that it wasn't safe working in healthcare. The injury rates, the needle stick injuries, the workplace violence injuries made healthcare a dangerous profession to work in. And that was before the pandemic. And now with the pandemic, we've seen the issues and challenges of burnout, depression, increased suicide. Of healthcare workers because of the strain, both emotional and physical, that they've been under over the last two years. So yes, that was the main impetus to raise awareness about the safety of our healthcare system, which needs to be improved.
0: So you risked your own personal safety to walk across country during a um to say it was a crazy year is an understatement. Midway through things were exploding in the streets. Unrest was exploding. Yeah. So what was the most surprising thing you encountered along the walk?
1: I think two things. One was the social unrest that erupted in many of the cities I walked through, be it Chicago, be it, you know, Phoenix, be it Miami, Cleveland. I walked through many cities where the night before there were serious riots and looting and windows being broken. The original title for the book that we were thinking about was Walking on Broken Glass" because for so many mornings, I was walking in front of boarded-up restaurants, boarded-up retail stores that had been just destroyed the evening before. So I think that, and the polarity of the country around wearing masks, I could not believe the vast differences in states and communities I went through as you said, am at high risk for potentially capturing or catching the virus. Um, I'm 67 years old. When I started my walk, I had just finished treatment for two cancers. And so I took whatever precautions I could to stay safe during the pandemic, be it here in Arizona or when I was walking through cities across the country. And there were times that I was threatened for wearing a mask. People would come up to me and, and literally say, get that damn mask off your face. And it's the same mask I wore for 25 years in the operating room as an anesthesiologist. And I wore it because I wanted to keep my patients safe from my germs, from my viruses, so they didn't get surgical site infections. We know that masks can help prevent these types of exposures. And yet, because I tried to stay safe, and take care of myself, people were threatening me. It was night and day difference between communities and states across this country. It wasn't about safety. It was about politics. And those two things, I think, caught me by surprise over, like I said, a year that has been one of the most historical years this country will have seen.
0: Yeah. And I mean, Given all that was going on, it was that burning platform and the work that you'd done across your career that really kept you moving forward. You've taken a lot of patient advocates under your wing, tutelage, uh, leadership, so that they could share their stories. And I know they played a role in this book in, in many ways. You want to talk about your relationship with the patient advocates and how they've really informed your work in patient safety?
1: They have probably impacted my career more than anything when it's come to quality and safety. You know, I talked about the things that I thought were most disturbing or most surprising. I will tell you some of the best parts about the walk across the country was walking in cities where patients and families came out and walked with me. Those who had lost loved ones through the years knew I was walking, and be it in Denver, be it in Milwaukee, Chicago, I could name every city I went to, family members came out and walked with me in memory of their loved one, trying to raise more awareness about the issues around healthcare safety. I walked with Armando Nahum in Atlanta, and his 87-year-old mother, Angela, came out and walked with us that afternoon. In the 95 degree heat, this beautiful woman walked four and a half miles with me around Truist Ballpark, home of the Atlanta Braves, and she wanted to walk because she wanted to memorialize her grandson, Josh, who was lost to preventable medical error. I walked with Brad Schwartz in Chicago. Brad is a lawyer who's a Four limb amputee from sepsis, delayed treatment of sepsis. And he has now dedicated his life trying to improve the safety of healthcare for others. He came out and on crutches, walked almost two miles with me, finishing at Wrigley Field. Those were such amazing stories. And I could go on and share so many of those moments. But truly, it was it was remembering those lost and those advocates. I was very fortunate through my career in that I did a lot of work around what was referred to as the seven pillars, which became candor. It was about open and honest communication after preventable medical harm. And because of that work, many families would reach out to me and want advice, want counseling. How could I get the answers that are being deprived of me? And, and through those relationships, I became friends with many of those who now help teach in many of the programs I offer. They are side by side with some of the top patient safety experts across the world who come together and with patients and families, as well as safety experts, we teach together and they raise the stakes. They raise the bar about the importance of our mission.
0: Yep. I know many of them and I, I get it. It's these stories that we're talking about right now that you shared in the book that we've been telling for a long time. And it's, you always believed that stories could do more for the cause. Is this how you came to that conclusion by including them and hearing them yourself? Or what made you believe that stories could change the way patients were treated and cared for in in medicine?
1: There's two things that really changed my approach around the power of stories and narratives. The first was reading Rosemary Gibson's book Wall of Silence. 75 different stories of patients and family members and what they wanted from healthcare after preventable medical harm. There wasn't stats, there wasn't data, it was just stories and narratives that really opened up your heart. Some of them hit you in the gut, but I never forgot those stories in Rosemary's book and many of those People who were in that book, Rosemary introduced me to, and I've been friends with them for over 20 years now in our journey to try to get to zero preventable harm. The second thing that totally convinced me was he brought Helen Haskell into medical school, into our medical school when I was the dean, the academic dean at the University of Illinois, and I asked Helen if she would come to Chicago and do a talk for close to 200 medical students. And I could have sat up there and I could have used PowerPoint slides, you know, the biology and the biochemistry and and the histology slides and lectures we give. You know, I could bore the death out of anybody with PowerPoint slides. Helen stood in front of the room and told Lewis Blackman's story, her son, and shared it with these 200 medical students and then opened it up for questions there were people who were crying in the room. There were people that you could tell they were touched. They were moved. There questions for Helen. That was one of the best educational sessions I have ever seen on patient safety. And it blew away anything you had done in the three years previously. So, I, you know, that was probably the conviction that, I, you know, you got to start using stories and narratives to leave a lasting memory. And you know that. We've done some great work together for the years and created documentary videos and publications and your are lit, Matt, please see me. It's all about those stories and narratives. And they are a big part of our Academy for Emerging Leaders in Patient Safety summer camps we do for students and residents each year.
0: Yeah. And I was going to get to that too, because, you know, you're you're uh, saying that you need to educate the young and regulate the old, came about at a conference, but you've, you've always been a champion of the students, of the residents, um, serving as academic dean in the medical school at University of Illinois. Um, and then you just mentioned Telluride, which was kind of an offshoot from there. I think that's one of your greatest legacies to date. I'm sure this book will just, you know, blow it out of the charts, blow it out of the water, and it'll be the Next le- greatest legacy, but talk a little bit about Telluride, about why you started it and the challenges that kind of led you to it, and also to get it started. And then, what were the biggest wins do you think that surrounded it?
1: I refer to what started in Telluride, Colorado, and now we actually call the Academy for Emerging Leaders in Patient Safety as my fourth child. It's something that I'm very proud of. I started back in 2004 as the academic dean at the University of Illinois, and I really wanted to change the curriculum in our medical school. We needed the biochemistry, we needed all the you know, all those traditional hard science courses, but I always felt that we needed to introduce the students to the concepts of safety and quality early in their career. And I wasn't the first to say that. There were a number of people in Aviation, who recommended this to the Institute of Medicine, that if you're going to change culture, you got to start early in the process when nursing students, medical students, pharmacy students enter into the profession and then build on it. So I went to the literature trying to build a curriculum around patient safety and quality, and I found there was absolutely nothing published. There were two small papers, and I go, how can I build a curriculum if no one knows how to do it? So I decided to reach out to the Telluride Scientific Research Center and see if we could do a four-day workshop where I brought all these patient safety experts, I brought educators, and I brought patients and families into the room and said, let's figure out over this year and then meet again in the summer next year, over a two-year period, let's build a curriculum around patient safety. What is the content that's needed? How should it be taught? different teaching methodologies, and finally, how do we assess and evaluate whether we're making a difference? And in two years, this great group came up with a brilliant curriculum that we ended up publishing in academic medicine. And at the same time, the WHO also published a similar sort of paper six months after ours was released, and they came up with the same sort of findings. What was the content? What were the best teaching methodologies and assessment tools? And then we said, but well, we got to start using this curriculum now. We got to implant it into a traditional medical school curriculum, which I did at the University of Illinois and started introducing it. But then in 2010, we came up with the idea. And thanks to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, we got a small meeting grant where we were able to bring in 20 different students, medical students, pharmacy students, nursing students. And we also brought in a couple graduate resident positions. And we put them through the curriculum for four and a half days. And they loved it. They just went to home and started talking about it with others and the importance of it. That small grant led us to the point where before the pandemic, we were offering between four and five weeks of summer camps, not only here in the United States and Colorado and in the Washington, D.C. area, but we were taking our show on the road. We were in Sydney, Australia, And Doha, Qatar, and we were training students and the future healthcare leaders about the importance of patient safety, the tools and techniques that are used to reduce risk, and then the communication tools of how to be open and honest when a medical error does cause harm. I think one of the highlights is even though we had to stop for two years because of the pandemic, we're coming back this summer and we're going to have three more weeks of summer camps. And we're going to have close to 1,500 alumni who are now in leadership positions, who are now out practicing medicine in the healthcare arena, who have gone through our program and understand these concepts. And not only are they asking questions about why aren't they being implemented, but many of them are going out and implementing or leading their organizations in quality and safety. So that has to be one of the greatest pleasures I have is to push it forward, so to speak, and and educate the next generation, because that's how you change culture.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just struck me. You said in 2004, you went to look for research to back up building a curriculum around teaching patient safety, and there was two articles. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that just sound counterintuitive to how to a part of a curriculum that should be included in learning how to become a physician? Well,
1: think about traditional medical education. I mean, it, it's still that way today. Everybody believes in the hard sciences. We need to teach anatomy and we need to teach physiology and we need to teach pharmacology. And it's all memorization and facts. And it's all these professors who have been doing it for 30 years and don't want change. But we're learning through aviation and other high-risk industries that what people refer to as the softer sciences, communication, leadership, teamwork, are all necessary components for an effective and safe healthcare system. And people who have been PhDs in tissue biology have a tough time understanding that these softer sciences can be equally as important in developing a future healthcare giver as well as healthcare leader
0: and receiver. <laughs> I think are going to benefit from all this. Um, so yes, I mean we could go on and on about all these different elements that could improve healthcare delivery and education. But we want to circle back to the book and and a lot of these touch points that we're talking about you're going to touch on in the book. But what is the overarching message that you want readers to take away from this. It's, it's a big endeavor to sit down and write a nonfiction book. I mean, it takes a lot of time, blood, sweat, and tears. We know this, right? So what's the takeaway? Why are you doing this?
1: Again, getting back to the core theme, trying to raise awareness about the third leading cause of death in this country, preventable medical harm to patients. And then you add in all the injuries and preventable harm that occur To those trying to take care of patients every day, those wonderful healthcare workers and healthcare givers, people need to understand that this isn't just a small issue, it's a huge issue. And I'm hoping the book reaches a market that maybe hasn't been touched by this, because as a lot of people will say, until you've been affected by a medical error, you tend to just go about your life. But when You read the stories, which the book will have, of many of those who we've lost due to preventable medical harm. And it'll be told through the voice of a mother who's lost a daughter, a husband who's lost a wife, a parent who's lost a grandparent. Through their voice, I'm hoping people understand the impact of what these medical errors mean to these families. I've used the term There are plane crashes in these families' lives. Their lives are changed forever. And that shouldn't happen when it's preventable. And so the statistic of the British Medical Journal saying 251,000 people estimate die every year from preventable medical harm by Marty McCary, that's wonderful and important information, but people just see it as data points. They don't understand these are human beings whose lives have changed forever, families who don't have that loved one there at Thanksgiving, there's an empty chair at the table. It breaks it, your heart to think about what these families have had to go through. And, and there's no, they never forget that hurt and that pain is there forever. And so I'm hoping this book connects the reader to understand it's not data and statistics, and third or fourth or fifthly, these are real human beings that we need to take care of. We need to improve the safety of our health system so that future patients, future caregivers do not suffer or die needlessly.
0: Is it a call to action? Do you want people to act? And if so, how can they act? What can they do?
1: Well, it is a call to action. And look, I'll be the first to admit healthcare does some amazing things. A lot of us are fortunate. We had two cancers. I was treated. Knock on wood, I've recovered. That's wonderful. But those advances haven't come without some breakdowns and some of the simplest things that end up hurting or harming a patient or causing a death that was preventable. So I'm hoping people start rising up. People start asking their congressional leadership. politicians. Why aren't we doing anything about this? Why aren't we focused? Why isn't there more research being put into this? Why aren't hospitals held more accountable to not only the outcomes, but also the transparency that comes with open and honest communication? You know, hospitals still get paid by the quantity and volume of the work they do, and very little, if any, Gets paid by the quality and safety of those outcomes. So, unless you change that metric, unless you make hospitals have more skin in the game, have to improve the quality and safety, more penalties when harm goes astray that they haven't corrected, and it continues to happen over and over again, we're going to have the same thing. So, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take creation of What many of us believe a national patient safety board, similar to what aviation has with the National Transportation Safety Board, an area where we can all learn together and share that learning across the country with hospitals so it can be implemented. We need outcomes that are reimbursed, not volume and quantity of care that's reimbursed, but the quality and safety of care that is a reimbursed model. And then we need more transparency throughout the healthcare system. Patients and families need to understand more of those outcome measures that a hospital needs to be transparent with. They need to be able to make informed decisions between hospital A and hospital B. Leapfrog does a tremendous job of putting out safety grades that give the public at least some understanding of what hospital may be safe in their neighborhood and what hospital might not be safe but we need to open up more transparency. So if I'm going in for a hernia repair, I'd like to know what the complication and infection rates for hernia repairs are within that hospital. And then within that hospital, amongst the surgeons that do those procedures, I could then make a much more informed decision between somebody who may have an infection rate of 0.001 and somebody else who's got an infection rate that's close to 3%. We don't know that. The public doesn't know that. And so that's that's the call to action. We need changes in how health is delivered.
0: Well, and we know that stories without the stories, the spotlight goes away and the spotlight needs to stay on the places that still aren't performing where they need to be performing. Also an understatement. But thank you. For all you're doing to, to keep this issue at the forefront, um, all your leadership and the patient safety space that really you know makes a place for the narrative, I think this is going to be part one. I'm hoping that we can, we can do part two on Lit Health when the book is out. When do you anticipate it coming out?
1: I'm hoping and continue to be uh, optimistic that this book will be out before the year's over, maybe even a little sooner for the holidays. Again, the sooner we get the message out, I think the sooner the book could potentially raise awareness and, as I believe, save a few lives. And as I said before I ended up finishing my 2,452-mile walk across the country from San Diego to Jacksonville Beach, Florida, I said if the walk saves one life through the close to 80 television, radio, and podcast interviews I've done about the walk, then it was well worth every step.
0: Well, great work. Thanks again for doing it. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it.
1: Gracie, great work. And continue sharing the messages of so many great people out there.
0: Right on.